I would ask, brothers and sisters, that you turn with me this morning to our text, which comes from the Gospel of Mark, as we'll be looking at chapter 6 and verses 14 to 29. Mark chapter 6 and verses 14 to 29. Mark chapter 6, verses 14 to 29. Brothers and sisters, then, if you would, hear with me the reading of God's Word. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah. And others said he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and a holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he had heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask, I will give it to you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came, took his body and laid it in the tomb. Thus far as the reading of God's Word. Now, we've probably all heard it said at some point, or have said it to someone at some point, that it looks like you have seen a ghost. And when we say that, usually what we mean is it appears that someone is, is startled, right? is in, in shock or surprised by something that they've seen, and it usually causes within them a a fearful reaction. And as I began to read this text over this last week, this is the reaction to me that it sounded like Herod had upon hearing about Jesus. I can imagine these people coming up to him saying that they see and hear of this person who's doing these miraculous deeds, who's proclaiming the Gospel, who has this great following. And as Herod stands before them, It looks to them as if Herod has just 
seen a ghost. Right? He must have been perplexed and shocked by the situation because we're told that Herod had John beheaded. Right? John was dead. And yet, no matter who these others were telling Herod it could be, the suggestions they were making, perhaps it's Elijah, perhaps it's another prophet of the old, Herod was convinced that it was John who has returned from the dead. And we read this in verse 16 when Herod says, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. Now we have to understand why this would bother Herod. And in order to understand this, we kind of have to walk through the story first together and start by asking, why is John even in the crosshairs of Herod to begin with? And we read in verse 18 that John has been saying that Herod's marriage to his wife Herodias is unlawful and it's unlawful because he married his brother's wife. Now, what I'm going to say next might be a little confusing. So listen attentively, listen carefully, and bear with me because it can get a little convoluted because these names I'm going to describe to you all have the name Herod in it. And that's because Herod is just a, a name of family designation. Okay? And so it starts with Herod the Great. In the early chapters of Matthew's Gospel, that is, that is who we read of. Herod the Great who sends these wise men to spy out Jesus. And it's Herod the Great who then has all those two-year-olds and under in that region who are males uh, murdered. Uh, now, Herod the Great has a bunch of children, and one of Herod the Great's children gives birth to Herodias, or is the father to Herodias. And so Herodias is the granddaughter to Herod the Great. Okay? Herodias is the granddaughter to Herod the Great. Now, she ends up marrying Herod Philip, who is her father's half-brother. So yes, she has married her uncle. And her daughter that we read about in this text today is, was the daughter conceived in this union between Herod Philip and Herodias. Now, Herod Antipas is another Herod figure that we read about, and he's the Herod who is in our text this morning. He is the one who has John beheaded. And so Herod Antipas goes to visit his brother and sister-in-law, Herod Philip and Herodias, and he ends up falling for Herodias. And he leaves his wife, and she leaves her husband, and they run away together. Now, a lot of the filling in of the, the story, the extra elements to it, comes to us from extra-biblical sources, uh, one being Josephus, the Jewish historian, who actually tells us the name of this daughter. And that name that he gives to us is Salome. And so if Herod Philip is the brother to Herod Antipas, then yes, Herod has stolen his brother's wife, who is also his niece, and married her and became the stepfather to his niece. I think. Do we get all that? <laughs> now what I want you to, to see and hearing all this, and, and remember, is the next time that you want to complain about how messed up your own family is, think about the Herods. Remember the Herods. Because they are truly a messed up family. But they are messed up because they are involved in gross immorality. Right? Gross immorality. But this is why John gets in trouble with Herod. Because he publicly rebukes Herod. Right? But Herod's sin is a public sin. It is done before the eyes of the people. And he has sinned against the law of God. 
Right? First, he has transgressed the seventh commandment in committing adultery. But he has also sinned against God's law as we read in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 21, where the Lord tells Moses to tell the Israelites that if a man takes his brother's wife, it's impurity. Right? And so Herod has sinned against God by taking his brother's wife. And so John the Baptist rebuked Herod for it. As this is what John the Baptist has been doing since he comes on the scene, preaching repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And now Herod's wife, Herodias, despises him for it. She despises him so much, she wants him dead. And so we're told that Herod sends for John, seizes John, binds John, but is unwilling to kill John. He just imprisons him. So he is forced to compromise. What's interesting about this is we see how much Herodias hates John. She despises him with every fiber of her being. But we're told that Herod, knowing that he knew, uh, feared John, excuse me, because he knew that he was a righteous and just man. We're even told in verse 20 that although he was perplexed by the things that John was saying, that he listened gladly. Here we have this sinner who's in a position of esteem and authority who can punish John who is hearing John preach repentance of his sin to him, and he kind of admires John for it. And yet, we ought to see then and understand why hearing about this Jesus makes him think that John has returned from the dead. Because the things that he's hearing Jesus say is the very same thing that he heard John say, which was preaching repentance for the forgiveness of sin, but now he is even doing it with greater power. But now what we see in Herod's reaction then to thinking that John had returned from the dead was the result of a a troubled conscience about what he has done. Especially in light of the fact that during these ancient times, they thought that a resurrection meant judgment. And so Herod is thinking, well, if John is now resurrected, this is God's judgment that is going to soon befall me. And so Herod now is experiencing fear and terror. And he had every reason But what we have to understand is what Herod is experiencing is not unlike what every human being experiences, and that is a conscience that accuses us of our sin. Right? Herod understood that he put a holy and just man to death unjustly, and what happens is his conscience now jabs at him when he hears about Jesus. And so it's this issue of the conscience and sin within Herod that we are going to focus our attention uh, mostly on this morning. And so we're going to do so under three points. And so the first point is the guilty conscience. The guilty conscience. The second point then will be sin quiets the conscience. Sin quiets the conscience. And the third point then we will conclude with is we must quiet sin. We must quiet sin. So point one, the guilty conscience. Now at the outset, I want us to see three things. I want to establish three things with you. First, we all have a conscience. We are told in Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, For when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. And he's speaking of the written law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness 
And their conflicting thoughts either accuse or even excuse them. So the Gentiles have a conscience, right? And acts as a witness, accusing and excusing them. But then Paul also says of himself in Romans chapter 9, verse 1, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears witness to me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Right? So here we see a, a Jew who is converted to Christianity has a conscience likewise that bears witness. And so we see that unbeliever, believer alike, Jew and Gentile, all people have a conscience. And even if I didn't tell you that, you would all know that by experience. For the conscience is an aspect of our human nature. Right? When, when we were all little, and let's say we, we lied to our parents, we felt this heavy burden weighing on us, didn't we? And that made us turn around and go back and tell our parents the truth. Right? That was our conscience convicting us of that lie, telling us that what we had done was wrong. This is the second thing that we need to establish. That the conscience is given to us by God in our soul, which then allows us to make moral judgments about right and wrong. Right? The conscience is given to us by God in our soul, which now enables us to make judgments, moral judgments, about right and wrong. And this is why the Puritans described the conscience as God's deputy with inside of us. Right? The conscience is God's deputy with inside each and every one of you. It serves as your inner witness. And in one sense, doesn't it seem to serve as an inner witness independently of ourselves as well? I mean, you could think of Many examples, I'm sure. Perhaps you've had a disagreement with someone. You got into an argument with your spouse. And soon after, all of a sudden, you say, why do I feel like I've done something wrong? Why do I feel like I did not handle that correctly? And as you reflect upon it, you understand that you were wrong in that situation. right? What you did was wrong, and that was the guilt that you were feeling for what you have done. Right? And so we see that even if we don't ask our conscience its opinion, it gives it to us, doesn't it? Right? It, it almost works independently of us. And the third thing that, that I want us to see is that through the fall and because of sin, the conscience has now been corrupted. Right? And because of the corruption of our conscience, we now see different stages of the conscience as a result. That's why you see some people with a more sensitive conscience, some people with a less sensitive conscience, and some people it seems like no conscience at all. The conscience, like the image of God, has been deformed within each one of us. And so our conscience is no longer good. And when I mean it's no longer good, I mean that it's no longer at peace with God. But now instead it serves to terrify us and to remind us of judgment. And this is what we see in our text today. Herod has a guilty conscience for putting John to death unjustly and now he fears what is going to come in return upon him. Right? This was God's deputy with inside Herod convicting him of his sin. Bearing witness to him of the guiltiness of his crime. Because John was a good and a godly man who should have been protected by the civil magistrate, not punished and put to death by him. And so now Herod is in fear, knowing that he's done something terribly wrong. But how do we get here? How do we get here? How do we get to the point that Herod beheads John when we just finished reading that Herod didn't want to? He didn't want to kill John. He just wanted him to be in prison. 
Well, we have to look back then in our text to verse 21. And at verse 21, we see that Herod throws this big birthday celebration. And what does he do? What does he do? He invites nobles and military men and other high-profile men of Galilee. We're told. And so during this party, we're told that Herodias, his stepdaughter, comes out to dance before these men. Now we can be certain that there's drunkenness going on at the party, sexual sin may be running rampant here. And so she is dancing seductively before these men. And Herod is excited by it. And so without thinking of the repercussions, Herod tells her, you know, ask of me whatever you want up to half of my kingdom and it is yours. And so what does she do? She runs to her mother and says, Mom, what should I ask for? And her mom says, this is the perfect opportunity to get John the Baptist and to kill him. And so she says, I want his head on a platter. And so Herodias, we're told, goes to Herod and says, I want John's head on a platter. And so what do we read then in verse 26? As a result, Herod is very sorry. Right? He's very sorry. But because he had all these important people before him, he was unwilling to break his promise. You see, Herod's pride right now is at stake. Right? He has all these mighty men before him, and he doesn't want to appear weak. And yet, as we see, right, the cowardly thing to do was what Herod did. What he should have did was said, no. But you see, it was because he did not listen to his conscience that now he has a guilty conscience upon hearing who he thinks is John returned from the dead. And yet at this party and in that moment, his conscience was not able to overcome the sin that was boiling up inside of him. But that is because sin quiets the conscience. And this takes us to point number two. Sin quiets the conscience. Even though Herod knew that what he did was wrong, he was not ready to deal with his sin. He was not ready to deal with this. And this is why his conscience then pricked him upon hearing of Jesus. Because his conscience was reminding him of the evil that he had done. But isn't this, brothers and sisters, the reason why unbelievers usually don't like to be around true Christians, do they? Because they don't want to be reminded of their sin. They don't want their conscience to be pricked. But when unbelievers get around unbelievers, right? they're very comfortable in their sin together. This is why we can see a group form like the LGBTQ group, right? If you think about it, logically, some of those letters representatives of those letters, the positions they hold undercut the positions that others hold in that acronym. And yet, they are willing, in order for their sin to be affirmed, to stand in unison with these people and affirm their sin as well. Because the more you can get people to affirm the sin, the easier then it becomes to quiet your conscience. Right? The easier it becomes to say, be quiet, conscience. You can't tell me what I'm doing is immoral or wrong because society tells me that what I am doing is right. right. This is how we begin to silence our conscience. We try to convince our conscience that we are good people. We are moral people. We are at peace. And yet, the more we deny our conscience and we follow after sin, right? we quiet the conscience. And Christians, We ourselves are not immune to this, are we? We are not immune to this. I am sure that there are people here today who have pet sins, 
and who have a guilty conscience and yet who make excuses for it and who hide it and who nurture it instead of ridding yourselves of it. What does Jesus say in Matthew chapter 5, verse 29 to 30? If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Do you see the danger of your sin? Do you see its very real threat to our life? This is why we must never quiet the conscience, but we must listen to it and obey it so far as it is informed by the Word of God. And this goes for everyone, including me. This is why I say to the children here today, right? forsake your sin and listen to your conscience. Right? Listen to your conscience before you do those things that you know you're not supposed to do when your parents are away. Right? Listen to your conscience when you're with your friends. And they want you to do things you know you ought not to do. This is why I say to the adults here, men and women, forsake your sin and listen to your conscience. Right? Listen to your conscience when your spouse is away. Before doing something you know you ought not to do. Before looking at things you know you ought not to look at. Forsake your sin and listen to your conscience before you get on your device or before you get on the internet or before you begin to dwell upon things that you know you ought not to do. Cut off that sin, for better you lose it than lose your whole body in hell. And I know that's a difficult message to hear. I know that it's uncomfortable, especially when it rings true in the heart as we sit here today. And yet, this is what both John and Jesus teach us to proclaim. They teach us that we must rebuke sin just as John rebuked the sin of Herod. So I want you to understand something. That as ministers, we want to be liked by everyone. You know, it'd be nice to be liked by everyone. Right? It would also be nice to have a, like a large congregation. But a lot of times, generally speaking, you won't arrive at these things. You won't be liked by everyone. You won't have a huge congregation by pointing out sin. Right? People want to hear things that make them feel good and not that stir up guilt with inside of them. And yet, what I want us all to see here today is that if you are a Christian, you are not going to be liked by everyone. And you ought not to try to be liked by everyone. Right? If you are a Christian, especially ministers here today, right? if we are ministers and proclaiming the Word of God and if we are living obediently and faithfully to Christ, we won't be liked by everyone. And so I exhort you, and I would ask that all of you pray for me, that none of us seek the praise of men, especially the praise of men over the praise of God. Jesus says in Luke chapter 6, verse 26, Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. And so we should ask ourselves, is everyone that we come into contact with able to speak well of us? If they are, perhaps you are making the sinner feel too comfortable around you. Perhaps you have no problem with sin as it's around you. And so I would say to you to stop 
and to take a page from John the Baptist. I know that we don't want to feel preachy around people. Right? We don't want to be killjoys at parties and gatherings and festivities. Right? We don't want to seem like Bible thumpers all the time. Right? But what we have to understand is it is our duty to call out sin when it occurs around us. And that you have to understand that in doing so, people will begin to think and speak negatively about you. But brothers and sisters, guess what? That is a part of being a servant of Christ. You know, it's funny that we oftentimes complain about any little effect that we feel from, ha- from living the Christian life. Right? Oh, these people are so mean to me because I'm a Christian. These people don't like me because I'm a Christian. I can't do this because I'm a Christian. Uh, the government is starting to want to take away you know, my freedom of speech. Woe is me. How terrible my life is. But John, one of the greatest servants of the Lord, is imprisoned and murdered. Right? His head cut off suffering far greater than any one of us will ever have to experience. But I want us to see something. I want us to see the result of sin upon the conscience. Right? We see initially that Herod has a guilty conscience. But Herod does not repent of his sin. And so as we'll see later on, all this serves to do is to quiet his conscience and to harden his heart. Right? Later in Luke's Gospel, in Luke chapter 13, we're told that Herod sought now to kill Jesus. In Luke 23, we're told that Pilate sends Jesus before this Herod. And what are we told? Herod dresses him up. He has contempt for Jesus. He mocks Jesus. Right? Sin has silenced Herod's conscience. This is why, brothers and sisters, we must silence sin before sin shuts up our conscience. You see, the problem was that Herod never dealt with his sin. This is why we must deal with our sin immediately when it springs up and not allow it to build up and to silence our conscience. And this then takes us to our third and final point this morning, which is we must silence sin. I want us to see that although we are sinners and our conscience is corrupt, that that does not mean that we don't have any hope to attain a good conscience. But the only way that we will ever obtain a good conscience is through faith in Jesus Christ. In belief in the promises of God. For there we have forgiveness of sin. For there Christ will take away right sin's reign over us and over our conscience. And so you don't have to live with a guilty and evil conscience. right? Christ can restore the good conscience. But the good conscience, as one Puritan writer puts it, is really only the echo of God's pardoning mercy. Right? The good conscience is the echo of God's pardoning mercy. Sin is silenced and the evil conscience is cleansed in the sense that then it can no longer condemn us. It can no longer frighten us and terrify us with the judgment which is to come. When we have placed faith in Christ, when we are dwelt by the Spirit, and when we come to realize that we belong to God. Right? Through the blood of Christ, we have been washed, cleansed, reconciled, and at peace with God. And He is now our Father. And this means then for the Christian that our conscience must constantly then be informed and enlightened by the Word of God. 
Right? Our conscience has to continually be informed and enlightened by the Word of God. Because remember, the conscience is corrupted. When the Lord restores that image of God, He likewise restores the conscience. But the remnants of sin still remain. And so we must always make sure that our consciences are guided and directed by the Word of God. Because if you neglect to do this, oftentimes your conscience might condemn you when it shouldn't and fail to condemn you when it should. And so we must recalibrate our conscience according to the Word. Right? Which means we compare our conscience with the Scriptures and where our conscience lacks, we fill it up with the Word. Where our conscience differs from the Word of God, we correct our conscience by the Word of God. Richard Baxter said, The erring conscience is not to be obeyed, but to be better informed. Right? If we desire to silence sin, we need to better inform our conscience. Right? We need to know Scripture better. We need to obey Scripture better. And part of obeying Scripture better is listening to your conscience, whose Lord is our God. Right? God is Lord of the conscience. And when we understand that, the conscience will stop feeling like that little irritating brother that we have. It will stop feeling like an enemy, a nagging enemy to us, and we will start to see our conscience as our friend. As someone who's there to aid us and to help us in order that we might make right moral judgments before God. Now I want us to also see something that just because we are a believer with a good conscience, it does not mean that we are going to attain perfection in this life. Paul understands this. And yet he can say in Acts 23 verse 1, before the council, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. You see, having a good conscience doesn't mean sinless perfection. Having a good conscience means walking in faith before God. Walking in integrity before God. Walking with the fear of the Lord always before your eyes. Seeking to live obediently to God. And always desiring to promote the glory of God. That is what it means to have a good conscience. So I ask, brothers and sisters, does this describe you? Does this describe you? If it does, you can walk out of here with peace of conscience. As your conscience ought to be reminding you that since you have trusted in Christ, you have been forgiven. And so I would say to all here, don't allow sin in. Don't allow temptation to lure you away. Don't allow sin to dwell within you or around you or in your midst. Because when you do those things, you will regret it. And the more you allow sin in, the more you muffle the conscience, the more you cause the conscience to callous and to harden. And for some, they get to a point where their conscience no longer worries them. And that's scary, isn't it? When the conscience no longer has any effect on them. And so I say to you, silence sin. Silence sin. Shut up sin before it shuts you up. Before it shuts up your conscience. And we do this by constantly and daily looking to Christ, to the Scriptures, to increase our understanding and heighten the sensitivity of our consciences, realizing that only the Lord is the Lord of our conscience. Right? Don't subject your conscience to bondage any longer. Don't subject your conscience to sin or to the reign of any other over you. Right? Remember that Christ has, perfect, has purchased liberty from the reign of any other over your conscience by His death on the cross. And so we can know that that liberty of conscience is ours when we realize that 
We cannot fulfill the law's demands. And then we turn to Christ in faith and say, Christ, nothing in my hands do I bring. Simply to the cross do I cling. When we say, naked come to Thee for dress, helpless look to Thee for grace, foul eye to the fountain fly, wash me Savior or I die. And when He washes the guilty sinner, when He washes us clean, when He washes that conscience clean, then we receive, as our confession says in chapter 21, a freedom that consists in freedom from the guilt of sin. Freedom from the wrath of God, from the curse of the law, from the bondage of sin, from the dominion of Satan. And we all have now free access to our great God and King. This is common to all who believe. And so I I encourage all of you to allow John's death, which was a precursor to Christ's death, remind us all that better days still await. Better days are ahead of us when we will receive the fulfillment of all of the promises of God. Right? We will receive that rest and that crown that Christ has secured and purchased for us. And so, brothers and sisters, I exhort you all to continue to press on in the Christian life in faith and obedience, remembering the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love Him. Please bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word written and the Word proclaimed. We ask, Lord, that You would apply what it is that we have heard this morning to our hearts. Father, that we would be able to say like Paul that we have a good conscience before God. We pray, Father, that You would give us a desire to stamp sin out in our life immediately when it springs up so as to not allow it to quiet our conscience. Teach us, Lord, to obey and listen to our conscience and that we would conform our conscience to Your Word. And we ask all this in Christ's name we pray. Amen.